We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 15 tonight. Before we get started, let's, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you again for a time we can come and uh, worship you uh, through singing. And we do thank you for those songs and the truths uh, we're able to sing. And we pray that that was acceptable to you. And now, we, uh, now we're going to worship you through the exposition of your word. And we ask that, uh, Lord, I ask that you would help me to be accurate and clear. And that uh, those who are here uh, that are listening would also uh, be accurate listeners. Lord, you would help them to hear uh, what is true and accurate. And, and that you would put aside whatever I might say that is not so accurate or so clear. So we ask your help for both of us tonight, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we're going to look into the book of uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Before we get to our text, just a couple things by way of background. Uh, Paul's, Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth could, could probably best be described as rocky, and, and that might be putting it nicely or mildly. Uh, when he first visited the city and, and founded this church, it was still young. It was only about 80 years old at the time, the city, and it already become perhaps the third most important city in all the Roman Empire after Alexandria and Rome herself. Corinth could easily be compared to any of our, our western, uh, our large western cities, our boom towns like New York or San Francisco. It was a land of opportunity. It had a, a booming uh, and a substantial entertainment and sports culture, and that sounds a lot like our cities today, right? Paul found his message, though, in the gospel in this city to be completely at odds with its culture, a culture that celebrated achievement and self-sufficiency. It's reasonable, then, to assume that the rockiness that Paul experienced in his relationship with the church at Corinth was due in part, at least, to this great distinction between his message and the culture. And by the way, this is a distinction that always exists between the world's culture and the culture that the gospel brings in. Well, after leaving the church of Corinth for the first time, Paul, Paul received news shortly thereafter of problems that had arisen in the church. And in order to confront those problems, he wrote a letter to the church at Corinth, a letter which we no longer have but is referenced in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Now, this letter, while he intended to clear up issues, didn't clear up all the issues that were there. And in response to questions from the, the uh, church members in Corinth, Paul wrote a second letter. And that second letter is a letter that we call 1 Corinthians. And we do have that. That's a book in our canon, obviously. You're familiar with that one. Now, this letter did resolve some of the issues, uh, but subsequently deeper issues, more, uh, more difficult issues arose, namely the issue of false teachers. And this, these issues necessitated another visit by the Apostle Paul. This is a visit that he refers to as the sorrowful visit. That's referenced in 2 Corinthians 2.1. This visit did not go well. Uh, you would think today if the Apostle Paul came here, we'd all just be like, wow, we're thrilled to see him, and we would be. They weren't so thrilled to see him. It didn't go well, and Paul was openly attacked by some of these, these false teachers there. That's referenced in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 and 10, and another place, a couple other places as well. But this visit was followed by yet another letter. This is another letter that we don't have uh, is not extant. We don't have it in our canon, but it was known as the severe letter. And in this letter, Paul expressed his sorrow over the lack of action on behalf on his behalf from the Corinthian believers, a lack of defense of his ministry. They just went right along with these teachers that had risen. Now, this letter was effective because it apparently brought about the repentance of many of those people who had gone against Paul and who had followed these teachers. We see that in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 of 2 Corinthians. However, there were some who persisted in this rebellion, and that necessitated Paul writing this, this book we have called 2 Corinthians, and he wrote it in order to defend his ministry, not for his own ends or from some need to be right or just to, to be um, self-defensive, but he wrote it for two reasons. First of all, to strengthen and to encourage those in that church who had repented and were now doing right, but also to bring about the repentance of those who were holding on to the rebellion, who were persisting in the rebellion. So the occasion of Paul's writing 2 Corinthians is his need to defend his integrity and his apostolic ministry against apostates 
who had begun to question his fitness as a minister. And they were attempting to convince those in the church to also turn from Paul. And more importantly, it wasn't about Paul, but more importantly to turn from his message, the gospel. They were attacking him over things, for instance, like his preaching. They said, this guy has no skills, right? And I'm not, you know, that's good news for me. This guy has no oratorical skills. And so they were attacking him over there. They, in that culture, they prized fine oratory. I read a book on, uh, I read, read a book on the, the Roman Empire. And, and one of the things they talked about was these, these speakers who could, they could speak on both sides of an issue. They didn't really have an opinion. They could speak just as, as, as fluently and passionately and move you for the gospel, and they could turn around and preach against the gospel and do the same thing. They prized oratory. Paul apparently didn't have that. He was a great writer. They said, he writes, his letters are big, his letters are strong, but he can't speak for beans. That's my, that's my translation. They, they, they attacked him over his, what they, they perceived as his vacillation over his plans on traveling to see them. He wanted to go see them. He wasn't able to, and he was being attacked over that. They're saying, well, if you're really a man of God, then you should just have, you should know what you're going to do, and you just do it. They attacked him over his lack of, of what they call recommendation letters. These, these speakers would come in. They would bring these, these letters from other well-known, well-respected orators, and, and that would be like their badge of honor. Well, guess what? Paul didn't have those. Paul didn't have his, his recommendation, recommendation letter was the road to Damascus, and they attacked him over his suffering. This was a man who suffered. In fact, that's a large part of what this book is about. They attacked him over his suffering. If you're really a man of God, why are you suffering? Perhaps they had bought into some version of the early health and wealth gospel and, and, and said, look, you can't possibly be a follower of Christ if you're not prospering in the world's eyes. So he has to write his, this letter to defend himself, more importantly to defend the message that he brings. And he was... In, intricately tied to his message. Paul and his message are one of the same, so to attack Paul was to attack the message. Well, coming to chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul makes this statement at the beginning of our chapter that we're going to be in tonight. He says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. In fact, this whole chapter begins and ends, it's, it's bookended, if you will, with this, this statement that we do not lose heart. You see it again in verse 16 of this same chapter. And when Paul says this, when he says we do not lose heart, he is saying that we persevere. We don't give up. He's, he's expressing in this chapter why it is that he continues in his new covenant ministry despite the incredible opposition and difficulties that he's facing. So let's take a minute now and read our text. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning of verse 13, we'll read down to verse 15. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. But what was it that kept Paul going? What was it that prevented him from abandoning his call? Why was it that this man was willing to risk his life at every turn for the sake of the gospel? I think that if we can determine the reasons that Paul persevered the way he did, we can learn, too, why we should persevere. Now, when I, when I talk about it, I said before, new covenant ministry, don't make the mistake when I say that of, of thinking that this only applies to those who are in pastoral ministry, that, that this only applies to those who are training for pastoral ministry, that this only applies to men, this applies to all of us. After all, we are all, if we're believers, called to gospel ministry wherever it is that God plants us. Now, as we come to our text, we see that, that Paul provides three chief reasons for his determination to persevere in new covenant ministry. Reasons that we will also have if we're going to persevere in the ministry that God has called us to. And the first reason that Paul perseveres in new covenant ministry, as we see in verse 13, because of his faith in God. Let's read that verse again. He says, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, 
therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. The verse begins with this statement, but having the same spirit of faith. And that first word, that leading word, but, is an important word. It's a small word, but it's important. And it contrasts what follows, what's going to follow here with what came before. First of all, it's contrasted with the immediately preceding verses where it says, he talks about death working in us, but life in you. But, but I believe it also contrasts all the way back to verse 1, where he says, we do not lose heart. Actually, following verse 1, you'll notice in verse 2, there's another but there, but we have renounced. And if you look down in verse 7, you'll see another, but we have this treasure. Now in verse 13, we have another, but. Each one of these, I believe, contrasts back to verse 1, saying, we do not lose heart, but. And so now we have this idea here. Paul's saying, I do not lose heart, or we do not lose heart, but instead, we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written. By the way, when he says spirit here, the, the NASB does this properly. This isn't the Holy Spirit. It's lowercase here. This isn't talking about the spirit proper, but rather an attitude, a disposition, a state of mind. And he's saying we have the disposition, the same attitude of faith as what was written. But, but the same spirit of faith as who? Paul identifies the one with whom he shares the spirit of faith when he writes according to what is written. Or perhaps, and I like this better, that verb there is a perfect verb, and we could say according to what stands written. He's saying according to what is authoritatively written. And the one with whom he shares the spirit of faith is the psalmist, the author of Psalm 116. This is the psalm, by the way, that he is quoting here, specifically from verse 10 when he writes, I believed, therefore I spoke. Paul is saying that the same truth that motivated the psalmist in Psalm 116 is the, is the truth that motivates me. But what, it, what was it that motivated them? What was it that motivated the prophet? Look back with me, if you would, at, at Psalm 116. You want to look at the context of this quote. Now, Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians, he's not quoting the Hebrew Old Testament here. He's actually quoting from the Septuagint. Now, most of you probably know what the Septuagint is, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And he's, he's quoting from the Septuagint's rendering of their translation of this psalm. So if you have a New American Standard or an English Standard Version or probably any other major English version, it's, it's not going to sound quite the same. But if you're there, for, uh, let's look there for a moment and, and, and check out the psalm. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of praise to God in the midst of affliction. And when Paul quotes the line he does from verse 10 of this psalm, he is, in effect, bringing in the entire context of that psalm. He's bringing that over into 2 Corinthians. So let's begin looking at verse, in verse 3 here. He says this, The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol, or the grave, came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And then, then he says the, the line that Paul quotes, I believed when I said, or we would translate, I believed, therefore I spoke. Look at the similarities, by the way, between the psalmist's position as he, as he declares it here in verse 3 and that of the apostle in 2 Corinthians. You see, first the psalmist was afflicted. The psalmist, this psalmist, by the way, has been identified by some as David because they're, they're there are stark similarities between this psalm and Psalm 18, which is identified in the text as a psalm of David. But in verse 3 here, he, de he declares or he details the severity of his situation. He says, death surrounds me, encompassed. He is surrounded, literally surrounded on all sides by death. The terrors of the grave are on him. That is, by the way, what, what Sheol means. It's, it's a little bit of a tricky Hebrew word, but the idea is the grave. And then he says this, he finds, what does he find? Does he find help? Does he find hope? He finds distress and sorrow. But then we have this, this statement in verse 10. You see, even right in the midst of his sorrow, he calls out to the Lord for help. And, and apparently, according to the text, the Lord answers him. The Lord saves him. The Lord delivers him. And he says in verse 10, I believed, 
therefore I spoke. So the psalmist was in the midst of a terrible trouble. Whatever it was specifically, we don't know, but we know it was terrible. And he cried out to God for help, and God rescued him. Therefore, he must speak about it. That's what he's saying here. I, had, I, was, I was down and out. I was afflicted beyond measure. I called out to God. He saved me, and now I have to talk about it. The psalmist's faith here compelled him to talk about what God had done for him. And just like that psalmist back over in 2 Corinthians, Paul's belief compels him to speak. He says, I, I have the same spirit of faith as that, as that man. What's, what's been written, what's authoritatively written back there in Psalm 116, verse 10, he believed he had to speak about it. I, we also believe. We also speak. And by the way, when Paul, Paul likes to use this we here, um, I spent no small amount of time reading about this, probably way too much time. But he, he uses the we here not to refer to himself and the Corinthian believers, but really he's referring just to himself and, and perhaps the apostolic office in general. It's, it's a humble way of saying I, but he's really talking about himself. So what does Paul believe? He has the same spirit as that author, as the psalmist, who said, I believe, I'm compelled to speak. But what is it that he believes? Well, the context of this imported psalm here, by virtue of his quote of that psalm, dictates that the belief is related to the faithfulness of God in suffering and affliction. And these are the things that are common both to the, the psalmist and to, the, to our author here, to the apostle. And in the same manner, Paul is saying that he believes, just like the psalmist believed, he believes, and in the same way, he is compelled to speak the reason he must speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ is because he believes the gospel and his faith cannot be silent. He has to talk about it. This idea that faith can be silent is not new. You know, some people say you don't really have to talk about your faith. During Calvin's day, there were people who, who uh, renounced the Protestant faith because they were in fear of prosecution or persecution and prosecution, by the way, that'd be appropriate. And they convinced themselves that it was okay to remain in the communion of the Church of Rome and to keep silent so long as they believed right in their hearts. And listen to what Calvin says in response to this. He says, let now our pretended followers of Nicodemus Mark, you know what he says when he says followers of Nicodemus Mark? They come to him by night secretly, right? They don't want to be seen. Let, us now, let now our pretended followers of Nicodemus Mark what sort of fiction they contrive for themselves in the place of faith when they would have faith remain inwardly buried and altogether silent and glory in this wisdom that they utter during their whole, whole life, not a single word of right confession. What's, what's Calvin saying there? No, you can't have it that way. You can't say you believe something in your heart and hide it. Hugh Latimer, which some of you guys are probably familiar with in the, in the mid-1500s, he was martyred, by the way, with Ridley and has a, that famous line where he said to Ridley, be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man when they were getting, about to be burned at the stake. And in Kent Hughes' commentary, he, he recalls uh, a story about Hugh Latimer in which he was invited to, to preach to Henry VIII. And I don't have the substance of the sermon, but when he preached to Henry VIII, by the way, you know, we would have preached to Obama and we might say something offend him. He might not like us, but there's not a whole lot he can do, right? But you preach to Henry VIII and he doesn't like what you, what you have to say. It's off with the head. Apparently, he said something in his sermon, which is not shocking from what I've read about Hugh Latimer, that offended Henry VIII. And he was ordered to come back and preach again, maybe apologize and say something a little more gracious. Do you know what Hugh Latimer preached? the same message he preached the first time. His faith compelled him to speak the truth. Thomas Cranmer, by the way, who was forced to watch Latimer and Ridley's burning at the stake, their execution. And at the time, he, if you don't know Thomas Cranmer, he really is sort of a, a, a big gun in church history. This man signed a number of recantations as he was forced to watch these two men burn. But shortly before his own execution, it seemed inevitable in that day if you were going to follow Christ faithfully, you could count on being executed. His courage returned and he, re he, he reputed his recantations. He, he wrote this, And now I come to the great thing which so much troubled my conscience more than anything I ever did or said in my whole life. And that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth 
which now here I renounce and refuse as things written by, with my hand, contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death, and to, and to save my life if it might be. And for as much as my hand hath offended writing contrary to my heart, my conscience, therefore my hand shall be the first punished, for when I come to the fire it shall first be burned. Faith cannot be silent. And even if it is momentarily silent, as in the case of Thomas Cranmer or even the great apostle Peter who denied our Lord three times, true faith cannot remain silent. It may even momentarily be silenced, but it cannot remain so. But what does scripture have to say? We've looked at a few examples of extra biblical men. What does scripture have to say about faith and speaking? Why is it that we must speak out? Look for a second at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, you can turn there if, if you like. You don't have to, it won't be there long. These are very familiar verses. I hate to say common verses, because really no verse is common, but they're familiar. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10, he says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart... A person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, he speaks, resulting in salvation. Now, what he's not—he's not saying here that that the work of speaking saves you, but it is the first evidence of an internal, a true internal faith in Christ. The heart that believes will confess. The faith that we have internally, if we truly have that faith internally, it must give rise to external testimony. What does the Bible say? What does Scripture say of the person who doesn't speak up for Christ? We know here we have the positive, right? If we have the internal faith, we confess him. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Let's see what, what Jesus has to say about those who don't confess him, those who don't speak of him. He says this, Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. Therefore, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So what about you? Are you a silent Christian? Do you say you have faith and yet it never comes out of your mouth? You never speak of Christ? I, I, even it's 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 amazing to me. It's just something not amazing to me. God's uh, powerful and and wise, all wise. But but he he he's done this on more than one occasion as I've been preparing a sermon. He, it's almost as if I'm preparing the sermon. He brings a circumstance, and so I can make the connection. Because if he doesn't do it that way, I'll miss it. If, if they happen even ten minutes apart from each other, it'll go over my head. So he's good to me in bringing circumstances right at the time I'm studying. Uh, about an issue. As I was studying this at the bookstore where, where I like to study, a uh, guy that I've known at the bookstore now for probably a year or so, I got there early to get my seat. I didn't have to throw anybody out of the chair. I got there early. And I was sitting down getting ready to study. I wouldn't you know it, this guy, who, who will say hi to each other and make small talk, he turns around, can I talk to you? And do you know what my first thought was? Oh, man i got to study to preach. i got to preach about talking about Christ. I don't have time to talk to you, man. And he wanted to talk to me about, he's been watching these apocalyptic shows on, on Discovery Channel, and he said to me, if you ever had an opening like this, if it's just going to end, what's the point? If we just live and die and it all goes away, what's the point? I'm like, you couldn't ask me something simple, right, that I can answer in two minutes. We had to... But it was good. But look, true faith doesn't hold back. It, it, when those opportunities come, it takes them. And I'm, I'm ashamed to say that, that I, was, I was reluctant. I wanted to study about how to share Christ, not tell somebody about him. We're not just talking here when we talk about believing and speaking. We're not just talking about personal evangelism. We're talking about life. And I, and I don't mean by that lifestyle evangelism, although that's not invalid. I, I'm not, that is a, a wonderful way for people to see Christ just in how you live your life differently, but that's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm asking if Jesus is part of your everyday conversation. Do you talk about him with your friends? Do you talk about him with your family, with your children? Do you talk about him with the people that you work with? If you are a believer, you must speak about him. Paul says here that belief compels speaking. It it can't be any other way. So the first reason Paul gives for his perseverance in ministry here in verse 13 is his faith in God and the fact that this faith compels him to speak. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. And he ends with this, this line, For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul had to do it. He was compelled to do it. But, but don't, don't be mistaken, it was a joyful compulsion. This was a joyful duty. And you might even hear that. Please, if you hear that and you go, I'm, I'm not a preacher. Um, Ryan's not talking about me. Don't be, mis- don't be mistaken. To preach the gospel is just to, to speak the gospel. We all have that responsibility. That's not just the responsibility of somebody who stands in a pulpit. Well, that's his first reason. He is compelled to speak because of his, his faith in God. But Paul goes further. And in verse 14, he provides a second reason for his perseverance in new covenant ministry. And that is because of the promised resurrection. Now, I've separated these verses into points, well, for one, for, for class, uh, because I have to preach this again in class, right? And it's a helpful way to structure information. But, but the fact is that none of these really stand on their own. None of these, they all sort of rise and fall together. You might see them as three legs on a table. They're all important. One doesn't, one doesn't work all by itself. We see this at the beginning of verse 14 where he starts out with this this participle, pardon the grammar there, knowing, and that connects, the knowing of verse 14 connects what he's about to say with verse 13. It's connected with the speaking of verse 13. Well, Paul was willing to risk everything for the sake of the gospel. He could persevere through through everything that he had because of his firm conviction regarding the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so he starts out verse 14 by saying, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus... Well, who is at the risk of, I'm not treating you like you don't know the answer to this, but just rhetorically, who is he who raised the Lord Jesus? Well, at least 17 verses in the New Testament identify the one who raised the Lord Jesus as God. We're not going to read all 17 verses, so it's okay. Relax. Uh, but in 2 Corinthians 1, 9, he says this, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So there he, he gives God the credit for the to, as being the one who was responsible for raising the dead. And then Peter, in his sermon in Acts 3.15 says, as he's talking to the Jews, but you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And don't lose sight, by the way, of that word knowing, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is a fact. It's known. And it is a fact that believers must accept. Charles Hodge says, It is assumed as a fact which no Christian did or could doubt that God had raised up Jesus from the dead. Paul knew that Jesus had been resurrected, and we know this as well, and this knowledge is the ground of faith. While the fact of Jesus' resurrection by God is the grounding for Paul's hope, it's not all there is. The fact of Jesus' resurrection also means that God who raised his own son will raise those who believe in his son. And so we have the example of Jesus' resurrection, but not just as something to believe in as a fact and truth, but the fact is that his resurrection means our resurrection. His resurrection meant Paul's resurrection. And when he says the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus, clearly it doesn't mean that Christ will be raised again. He's saying here that Christ is the prototype. He's the basis for our resurrection. As he says in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, some have taken Paul's statement, his words at the end of this verse, where it says he will present us with you as a reference to being presented before the throne of judgment. Well, while we don't have anything to fear as believers before the throne of judgment, right, our position is secure. The idea is that it's really foreign to the context here that he would be placing us before 
the judgment seat of Christ, even, even with the certainty of, of being acquitted, which we have, that certainty, it's still a fearful thing to stand before Christ's judgment seat. That, that would be foreign to the context here. This is a context of hope. This is a context of perseverance. So we would do well here to recall the words of Jude. In Jude 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. This is a joyful thing. This is a joyful promise. He is going to present us with Paul and all the other believers with Christ. This is, a, this is what Paul is pointing us to. This is a wonderful hope, a wonderful promise. Jesus' resurrection, it secures our resurrection, and we will be with him in the presence of God. That's the promise that Paul is imparting to the Corinthian believers. It's a promise of hope. Well, just how important is the resurrection to us as believers? We can see then, and let's turn back now to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to take a second to look at this passage. And by the way, it's, it's fair to do this because the Corinthians would have had this letter, right? This is the first letter to them. They would have been very familiar with this material. As Paul talked about the resurrection and said that he who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise me and present me with you, they, this, this, this text would have, would have been in their mind. Look at with me at chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12. We'll read down to verse 19. I want to look first, how important is a resurrection? I want to look at this negatively first. And we see that in verses 12 to 19. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is, is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. How important it's a resurrection to believers. If there is no resurrection, Christ is dead. Preaching, what I'm attempting to do right now, pointless. The faith that you claim to have, worthless. All of us have been lying for however long we've been talking about Christ being resurrected. We've been lying. We've been lying about God. Maybe worst of all, you remain in your sins and you have no hope. And those who have already died, I think of my mom and my sister, and you have somebody, I'm sure, close to you that's died, they, have fought, they, are, they are destroyed. The word there is apolumi. They are destroyed. They are no more. They are wiped out. There's no hope for them. And we are utterly without hope. We are pitiable. We're not hopeful. We're to be pitied. That's what he says. How important is a resurrection? Negatively, if it didn't happen, this is us. Absolutely hopeless. But positively, let's look at verses 20 through 26. It says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits after those who are Christ that is coming. After that, those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end. When he, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Well, positively, the resurrection is important because Christ is alive. We will be made alive. He's going to reign. He's going to defeat all enemies. And my favorite, given the last couple of years, he is going to eradicate death. That's, this, there, there may be no more important thing for us to think about than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So much rides on it. And it's a fact. Paul presents it as a fact that can be known. Now, while Paul's first reason for perseverance, his faith in God compelling him to speak, it's rooted in the past. He shows us here in verse 14 that his focus is on the future. Kent Hughes in his commentary on 2 Corinthians says this, our beliefs, our beliefs and hopes for the future exert a control that dictates how we live our present lives. And he, said, he concludes with this statement, our futures determine our present. 
So what is a future that is controlling your present? What are you focusing on? When we think about the future, and I would say especially in America, what do we think of? The big R word, right? Retirement. And everything that accompanies retirement. Most people are geared towards planning for the day when we no longer have to work. That, that's, I mean, that's throughout our culture. We have 401Ks, IRAs. You know, I'm sure there are other uh, acronyms for saving accounts for people when they get older. Everybody's planning for the day when we can live the good life. Our whole life is geared towards getting to that age. What is it, the retirement age now? 60? 57 and a half? They always put the half in there. 57 and a half, 60, whatever it is. And then we're going to live the good life, right? I'm, I'm, I'm really busting my hump now, and I'm going to, man, I'm going to get there, and I'm going to live the good life. That's what it's all about. But according to 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be raised because Christ resurrected, and we are not put here to try and survive to retirement age and live the good, relaxing life with no worries. That's not to be the position of the Christian. It's so easy to get sucked. That's our culture. But our goal is not to live comfortably after a certain age. Our goal needs to be Paul's goal. Paul wasn't afraid of death. Why? Because the promise of the resurrection. And he testifies to this in Philippians 1.21. What does he say? You guys know that verse well. For me to live is what? Christ. And to die? Gain. But listen, um, you'll miss the point, and I would miss the point even as possible for the guy, by the way, preaching to miss the point too. If we just walk out tonight and say, okay, I believe in the resurrection. It's a fact. I believe it. The fact is this belief, if it's truly held, must lead to a change in our thinking and in our behavior. If we truly believe in a resurrection, it must result in a life that is Christ-focused. Look at the last verse of that 1 Corinthians 15 passage with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Having impressed on the reader in that passage the importance of the resurrection, right, negatively and positively, it is vital. What does Paul say? In 58, he calls the reader to action. He says this, Therefore, in light of everything that's come before, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's it's a call to action. The resurrection means we act. We act differently. Our goals are different. This, by the way, doesn't mean we're foolish and reckless that we put God to the test. We see even in in the temptation of Jesus when Satan put put him up on top of the temple, took him up and said, you know, fall down and and the angels will rescue you. And what was Jesus' response to him? You don't tempt the Lord your God. We We don't put God to the test. We know that we're going to be resurrected. We know the promise of eternal life, that this life, however short or long it is, is nothing compared with what's to come. But we don't put Jesus or put God to the test. What it does mean is that we must be loyal servants of Christ. And if we suffer, like Paul suffered, like the psalmist suffered, then we suffer. If people around us that we love die, they die. If we die, we die. Paul wasn't afraid of his death. His conviction was that death was not the end, and it motivated him to persevere in ministry. And I would say that it has to motivate us as well. So Paul persevered in ministry first because of his faith in God, a faith that compelled him to speak. We saw that in verse 13. And second, because of his confidence in the resurrection. We saw that in verse 14. Finally, and most importantly, he persevered in new covenant ministry because of his commitment to God's glory. Look at verse 15. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. In this verse, Paul Paul really gives us a a deeper and fuller insight into just why it is that he can persevere in new new covenant ministry, why he perseveres in his ministry. In fact, what we we really have here are two purposes that lead to a, a third and final ultimate reason, which is bringing glory to God. First, when he says, the beginning of that verse, all things are for your sake, what is he referring to there when he says, all things are for your sakes? Well, it doesn't mean every single thing that's ever happened. Right, but what he's, he's specifically talking about here is his sufferings and his afflictions. And he explains why it is that he's willing to suffer for the sake of the Corinthian believers. All my suffering, everything I've been through is for you, is what he says. 
But what all, what all things, what sufferings is he referring to? Turn back just a, a page of, of your Bibles. I lay out the same as mine. Same chapter, verses 8 through 11. He says this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Ken Hughes, again, he, he sort of summarizes these, these four things nicely in these, in these verses, 8, 9, 10, 11. He says, squeezed but not squashed, bewildered but not befuddled, pursued, not abandoned, knocked down but not knocked out. But the, he is... He is he is a paraphrase. There's a lot in the white space there as he, des- as he describes these states of affliction. And you can even go back to chapter 1, which in, and it's very opening. If you read verses 4 through 8, which we won't take the time to read right now, but if you just let your eyes fall over those verses, you'll see that the word affliction appears multiple times in that first chapter of this book. And if we turn further back in the book to chapter 11, still in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we have a more detailed accounting of what he has suffered. Look at verse 23, chapter 11. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, and far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, all this, if that's not enough, there's a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And he says, all of this for you, all of this I suffer, all of this affliction, everything I've been through for you. He's saying that all these things happen on account of you for your sake. Why? Because he's spending his life in their service. One commentator says, without exception, all these things, this is what Paul is saying, all these things take place because of them. He's reminding them, everything that I've suffered, all the afflictions that I've endured, are not for my glory, but they're for your benefit. He's in effect asking them, why do I do all these things? Why do I suffer all these things? I do it for you. He says in 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. I said before, there are really two purposes leading to, leading to this final ultimate purpose. And so he first says, everything I've suffered, it's for you. But it's not just for that. And in fact, it's for them in this way, so that the grace which is spreading will spread to more and more people. The benefit Paul speaks of is the spreading of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ to more and more people. That's the heart of Paul's burden. They're not benefited by his hurting and his suffering in and of itself, right? It's not as if him being beaten with rods does them any good. It just causes him pain, but it does them good to the extent that it spreads the grace of the gospel of Christ. It abundantly multiplies God's grace to more people. That's what, that's, that is what Paul is all about. And he says, I, I suffer, I'm afflicted, I go through everything I've gone through for you, to facilitate the spreading of the gospel, the multiplying of the gospel to more and more people. But even this, the multiplying of followers of Jesus Christ isn't the end game. It's not the final goal. It's not the ultimate prize. Paul takes this a step further than just his passion for the elect, which we do not want to minimize. He, he said it. I suffer, I'm afflicted for you. I do it for you. We're not going to minimize that. But even as important as that was, even as important as the spreading of the gospel was, all the, the Corinthians and the, those who had come to Christ were all pointing to God's glory. And so he concludes this verse with the ultimate purpose, that it may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. And this theme, by the way, runs throughout the writings of Paul. 
Roman, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fire off some verses here, so don't try to run, turn to them, okay? I mean, you can, but you don't, don't stress yourself. Romans 15, 6, so with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, a very famous verse. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Philippians 1.11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And Philippians 2.11, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. One Bible teacher summed this verse up this way. He said, more and more grace, more and more people, more and more praise. But how does this truth apply to us? It's not all about what Scripture says, but this is important, right? We don't want, we don't want to leave it over here in the, yeah, that's really great for Paul. How does this apply to us? What does this do to us? What does this tell us? How does it change our thinking? Well, our primary motivation for evangelism, our primary motion, uh, motivation for ministry, our primary motivation for living the Christian life must be God's glory. It must be God's glory. And the glory of God is who he is. And to glorify glorify God is to recognize who he is. Does your evangelism, does your ministry, does your, does your life point people to recognize who God is? Is he glorified by your life? Listen, we all want to see people go to heaven and be saved from hell. We all want that, right? Especially those people that we love and care for. You, you, want, to, you want to see them come to know Christ. You don't want to see them go to hell, but the ultimate goal and desire is that God would receive more and more praise. We don't evangelize or minister or live the Christian life out of guilt or even primarily for people. We evangelize and minister and live our Christian life so there will be more people giving praise to God. That's why we do it. We persevere in our ministry so that there will be more and more people answering the call of Revelation 19.5. Look at that verse with me for a second. Revelation 19. I hope we're not jumping around too much for you. I seem to remember you teaching on this, Mike. Revelation 19.5 says, And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his slaves. You who fear him, the small and the great. Now, this verse 6 will make, makes your skin tingle. Maybe not after I read it. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Look, what we do, we evangelize, we live our Christian lives, we minister. Why? So that we will add more and more people to that chorus, that, that we will bring more and more people, that the decibel level of that gets raised to incredible levels. By the way, I just want to emphasize, this doesn't mean we don't have a heart for people. Ultimately, we want to see God glorified, and that's why we do it, but that does not minimize having a heart for people. Paul has, Paul has said it here, right? He said, ultimately, this is all for God's glory. It's not for me. It's not for you. It's not for the people who are coming to Christ. It's for God's glory. But Paul, even Paul betrays a heart for his countrymen. Look at Romans 9. You read Paul and Paul. Romans 9, chapter, one, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. He's speaking of his own people, the Jews. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And now comes this incredible statement. He says, for I, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I'm not sure I'm familiar with any other more bold, uh, loving statement than that regarding other people and, and by somebody who wasn't Jesus in all the New Testament. I mean, he's saying, I'm willing myself to be, I'd be willing, if it were possible, for me to be separated from Christ so that my countrymen would come to know him. That's love for people. And so we don't want to minimize that. Yes, ultimately, everything for God's glory, but that does not mean that we don't have a heart for people. Those things go hand in glove. So here's the million-dollar question. Are you willing to offer your life so that God will be glorified? Are you willing to suffer so God will be glorified? 
to be afflicted like Paul was afflicted for God's glory? We know what we're supposed to answer, right? Yes, we should all be nodding our head yes, but now think about it. Are you willing to do that? Think about what Paul suffered. You probably won't have to suffer that. I can almost guarantee you won't have to suffer that. But are you willing to suffer like Paul did so that God will be glorified? Paul could suffer attacks from unbelievers, and more importantly, he could suffer attacks from, from those who claimed to love him, those who he had brought to faith in Christ. He could suffer attacks from them because he wanted God to be glorified. I don't, I don't know. I, I know what the right answer to that question is, like you do. But that's not an easy question to answer. Am I willing to suffer like Paul did so God will be glorified? Well, Paul, here in these verses, has clearly laid out his reasons for, for persevering in New Covenant ministry. He perseveres in verse 13 because of his faith of God that compels him to speak. He perseveres, secondly, because of the promise, the hope of the resurrection. And finally, he perseveres because of his commitment to God's glory. So why do you do what you do? If you're a Christian, why do you do what you do? What is it that, that motivates you in your Christian life, that motivates you to, to serve the church and to share Christ with others? Is it the praise of man? Is it because you feel guilty if you don't? Or is it because your faith compels you to do these things? Is it because you have a hope and a future resurrection? Is it because you want to see God glorified? Paul, Paul gives these as his reasons, these three things we discussed, and I submit that these must be our reasons as well. If we believe, we will speak. We can't do otherwise. If we have the hope of the resurrection, our lives and our motivations must be radically different. Our hopes and our dreams must be radically different. And if we are committed to God's glory as the ultimate reason for persevering, nothing Nothing will dissuade us from laboring and suffering for others. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, our time has been well spent tonight, that, um, Lord, you would change us as, as we come away from uh, learning about your word or those areas where we are deficient, that you would convict us of that. Lord, you would help us, if, if, the, if these things are not true of us, Lord, that we would, we would always examine ourselves. Lord, examine ourselves to see if we really are your followers, if we're truly Christians. Lord, we must be different. Your word is so clear about that. And we want, we want to be different. And Lord, we ask for your grace to, to first of all, point out those areas where, where we're deficient. And then, Lord, we need your grace to, to make those right too. We certainly can't do that on our own. We're completely dependent on you. In your name we pray, amen.